The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So tonight's the last week that I'll be speaking on equanimity. And then in September I'll start uh, looking at the next part of the Eightfold Path. And for those of you who haven't been around, uh, most of my talks for this last year have been focused on the three aspects of the Eightfold Path, which is the basic outline of a spiritual life that the Buddha gave, but specifically in terms of practicing in daily life. So we've talked about sila, cultivating this perspective of non-harming and how that how we work with that in our daily lives and more recently looking at wisdom or panya and using the four beautiful emotions of loving kindness and equanimity and appreciative joy and compassion as the reflection of, of wisdom. So that's what I'll conclude tonight. And then in the September I'll look at the third part of the Eightfold Path. I know that's a little confusing. But uh, it's the section on concentration or samadhi. And it's really about being free of distraction. And this is something, I mean, often we think about this aspect, especially in terms of city meditation practice. But practicing non-distraction makes sense all day long. You know, just doing one thing at a time. Doing whatever we're doing fully and completely. This is just you know, basic rule of competence. If we want to be competent at anything, we have to really show up and be there doing what we're doing in that moment. So I'll talk about that for uh, the next several weeks, September, maybe even part of October. So for all of the four Brahma-Viharas, these divine abodes or divine emotions, I've been talking about them not so much as something we directly cultivate, like kindness or compassion or joy or equanimity, but something, it's an inherent quality of the heart, of the mind, that's revealed when there are supporting causes for it to be revealed. So generally speaking, if we open more completely to the way it is, then these beautiful qualities are revealed. It's kind of nice in this way. It's a sort of a beautiful science. So if we want to be a more loving, compassionate, equanimous, joyful person, instead of having to somehow acquire that those qualities, we simply learn to be more fully present. It's the, the proximate cause for those wholesome qualities is being really grounded in the truth of our lives just as they are. So that's what I've been talking about the last two or three months. And then for equanimity, for this beautiful quality of equanimity, this great spacious quality of the mind, or one definition I like is intimacy with understanding. So we're really connecting, really engaged, really grounded in our experience but there's this vast understanding 
so we're not confused by whatever's happening in that moment. But this, the impartiality of equanimity arises not because we're trying to be detached above it all, but because we're seeing things so clearly and deeply, so intimate, that we're recognizing there isn't anything to grasp. The grasping doesn't make sense. Clinging doesn't make sense. Identification, attachment don't make sense. So that part of the mind, that sticky part of the mind, just falls away, and equanimity is what's left. And one way to think about this is in terms of, you know, when we're sitting, when we're walking, when we're living our lives, we're noticing Dhamma, the way it is. And by that, the one way the Buddha suggested that we recognize the way it is, the experience in its essence, is in these three qualities of its changingness, the impermanent and constant nature of whatever we're looking at, whether we're looking at thoughts in the mind or listening to this talk. When we relax the attention, <coughs> but without distraction, without superficiality, so we have that sort of relaxed but very interested, alert presence, we'll see this truth of flux or change wherever, whatever we're opening to. And we'll notice that given that truth of change, life inherently, experience inherently, is unsatisfying. Because it's in flux, it can't be grasped. It can't be made mine. It's like slipping through our fingers. Our lives are slipping through our fingers. Even really nice experiences, if we really pay attention, we see it's already falling away. So we finally get to the dinner with the right person in the right restaurant, with the right meal. Everything's fine. But if we're really fully present in that experience, experience may really be beautiful, and no denying that. But what's also true, right in the, in a sense, in the middle of that beautiful experience, is the truth that it's already falling apart. It's already changing. Just like the summer has been becoming fall all summer long. <laughs> it's been transforming itself to fall, which means winter isn't far behind. So we can notice that, and we can notice that about our relationships too, like those of you who are parents. And you, you see your young daughter or son, and if you're just in your normal, I don't mean to be derogatory, but normal deluded frame of mind, you know, you think, I've got a 10-year-old son or something like that. But if the mind is in this clear, relaxed, full presence, the son, it's, he is already being transformed into a teenager, into a young adult, into a grown man. It's already happening. That, that unfolding is already there. And there's nothing we can do about it. And trying to kind of hold on to anything is painful. So this is the other characteristic. There's the characteristic of change, and then very closely related, not really different, is the characteristic that things are unsatisfying. Because things are in flux, from the point of view of an ego, they're unsatisfying. Ultimately, these aren't ultimate truths. These are just truths from, a, from this 
conventional point of view, when we look at experience, we see that it's changing. From a conventional point of view, when we look at experience, even really pleasant experience, on some subtle or not so subtle level, it's unsatisfying. And then the third characteristic that we just see being open and clear is that it's impersonal, that it's conditional. So part of this flux, it's not a erratic flux, it's a lawful change, changingness. So we see that lawful unfolding of everything that we look at. We can see it when we observe our thoughts, how thoughts come and go in the mind, or emotions come and go. Well, see, it's lawful. One thing leads to another. Or many things lead to this, which leads to the next, which leads to the next. And this unfolding that we can notice, whatever we look at, we see the lawful unfolding. And we see that, in a very real sense, there's no beginning or end to the, this lawful unfolding. And there's no center to it. Like, we all had a day today, right? But was there a center to our day? Like, this was the day we had. <laughs> there is no center to it. It was a happening. It was a lawful happening, whatever our day was. Now, we have a word, day, you know, what happened to me today. And that word can be diluting because, it, because it's a noun, it seems like it's a something. But today wasn't a something. Doesn't really have a center, doesn't really, isn't something that can be grasped. And this is the third characteristic, the anatta characteristic, or sometimes transla translated as the not self characteristic. But what we can, another way, maybe more useful way, is that all things have no center. Because things are, this change, this process, processes don't have a center. Fall, you know, as a season, doesn't have a center to it. It's the same with Mark. Mark is also this unfolding process, which is a nice term, you know, because it refers to this process. But the process doesn't have a permanent essence or center to it, as we conventionally assume in our diluted way. read a little bit from Sharon's book here. She's got a nice chapter on equanimity. If you ever want to look at her book, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness by Sharon Salzberg. Most of the time, our hearts and minds respond to the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows by careening back and forth over and over again between elation and despair. The violent movement for and against what our experience is. Or we respond with denial in its many manifestations. Indifference, repression, not noticing, muffled anxiety, feeling disconnected. Fortunately, as the Buddha revealed, rather than being lost in these conditioned reactions, we can learn to be balanced in response to them. Such balance does not mean that we do not feel things anymore. Meditation does not turn us into gray, vegetative blobs with all the feeling washed out. The Buddha taught that when we can feel pleasure fully, 
yet without craving or clinging, without defining it as our ultimate happiness, we can feel pain fully without condemning or hating it. And when we can experience neutral events by being fully present so that they are not just fill-in times until something more exciting comes along, this non-reactivity is a state of equanimity and it leads us into freedom in each moment. And I really like this definition, really, of equanimity. So instead of this gray, vegetative sense of equanimity, being somehow detached above it all or immune to it all, detached, distant from it all, it's really this uh, profound state of hyper-energetic presence in life. So we're really aware when things are difficult, there's this full presence with the experience of difficulty, sadness, for example. And when there's something beautiful happening in our life, there's this full energetic presence with the beauty, the goodness, or the pleasantness. And when things are calm and neutral, we don't space out. We're fully aware. It's neutral. It's ordinary. It's just this. So the impartiality arises out of wisdom. It isn't some kind of stance we take, oh, we should be impartial. We should be equanimous. It really comes from seeing that whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral right now for us, it's really about the fact that the mind is relating with wisdom. So in that pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality, we're seeing that it's, it's changing that grasping it in any way, wanting it to last, wanting to go away, thinking it doesn't matter, all of those stances add suffering to the moment and are completely unnecessary. It's really possible instead to, to take refuge just in the full presence. She's got one more paragraph here I wanted to read. Equanimity's strength derives from a combination of understanding and trust. It is based on understanding that the conflict and frustration we feel when we can't control the world doesn't come from our inability to do so, but rather from the fact that we are trying to control the uncontrollable. Right? So... It's not that we can't control. It's not like a failure on our part. The problem isn't like we're weak and we can't hold on to the good or get rid of what's difficult in our lives. The problem is we're misunderstanding the nature of our experience. We're just misperceiving it. Like we, like for example, we get it when we're feeling healthy. We get attached to feeling of healthy, being healthy. And there's this sort of, like a lot of us in this room right now who are healthy, whether we realize it or not, there's some attachment because when, as soon as we become unhealthy, we'll be surprised. That's the telltale sign we were attached, is when things change, we get reactive. Like, how did this happen? As if somehow we were immune from getting old or sick. 
So this is how we know we're not that that we're attached, that we're not fully present with this under with this wisdom understanding that things change. There is no control. The Buddha, um, one of his more subtle teachings that probably will take a long time to to go into depth with, but I do want to introduce it again and. This is one of those things that it's just good to revisit over and over again as a particular teaching, and especially as one of the Buddha's more subtle and powerful teachings, sometimes called dependent origination or codependent arising. But it's really pointing to this third characteristic that he suggests when we look, when we open fully, completely to any experience, we'll see the conditional nature of experience, the, that whatever is arising in this moment, it's conditional. And so whatever the supporting conditions are for this moment to be this way, if those supporting conditions weren't there, this moment wouldn't be this way. And so knowing this is a principle of all experience, then we get really interested, well, what is what is the uh, what are the supporting causes conditions for suffering or for happiness right that's a pretty relevant question as soon as we begin to see that nothing happens in an independent way separate from everything else so when when the heart is suffering when we're upset and really feeling weighed down by life then there are it's arising in the context of supporting causes and conditions and if we know what those are that wisdom is really useful. That understanding is really useful. Because if we're blind to the supporting causes and conditions for suffering, we'll just keep stumbling into it over and over again in our lives. So he lays it out in different ways. This isn't the only way, but the most common way are with these 12 factors that are like a chain. This loop, in a way, is samsara, the cycle of suffering just keeps replicating itself. There's no end to it unless the chain's broken. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. So it begins with, like I said earlier, misperceiving things, or what the Buddha would call ignorance. Not seeing things as they actually are is ignorance. So it's, you know, it's not, we don't need to be embarrassed to say that we're ignorant, because rarely are we really clear we're mostly just living on the surface using, kind of trusting our concepts that they actually represent what's truth. So when we show up at Comic Con, we're not really grounded in our five physical senses and aware of thoughts as thoughts. We just have this basic thought, oh, I'm at Common Ground. And then we forget that that's just a thought. And in a way, that's enough. We're just sort of living inside of whatever that concept we have of common ground. And we're no longer paying attention, no longer mindful. So this misperception, misperceiving of things is ignorance. And then that leads to karmic, what's called karmic formations. And you can think about it, when we misperceive something, then our interaction in the moment is going to be off. Because our, inter our way of interacting is based on something that's not true, because we're misperceiving it. So because we're, our response 
in the in life in the moment is based on a misperception it's off and by off it means that there's unfinished business and that unfinished business is our karmic formation it's like what's left over so we have we've had you know countless interactions countless moments of experience today every one of those moments where we were not seeing clearly fully present with this relaxed full presence then we were misperceiving what was going on and to some degree our response to the moment wasn't right wasn't good was off and then that's that being off is alive in us as unfinished business you know maybe we said something we should have said or we didn't speak up when we should have spoken up or you know how many different ways that we create unfinished business by misperceiving what's going on so we have ignorance we have karmic formations and the the basic essence of karmic formations is and i talked about this last week this this uh movement toward becoming because on some level when we feel like our life's not done like i'm not fully content i want something else in my life right that's unfinished business so that's the becoming we want to become the person who doesn't have any residual anxiety or desire or fear because we're not perfectly content because we have unfinished business and so what is becoming lead to consciousness this is this is a very distinct part of buddhist philosophy or psychology that what drives our births you know no normally we might think well we take rebirth because that's what minds do that's what mind streams do they die and then they take rebirth if you believe in reincarnation or what in buddhism we'd call rebirth but that's not what the buddha taught the rebirthing happens because of this unfinished business like one famous contemporary teacher said when he was asked what takes rebirth he said your neuroses take rebirth it's our unfinished business this feeling like we're not done we want to become something else right we want to become the next cleopatra or the next president of the united states or we want to be relieved of suffering or we want we have all these wants and wanting to becomes and those are our karmic formation and they lead to taking birth either as a being or even taking birth in this next moment of my existence so this works in terms of lifetime to lifetime but also moment to moment and probably here it's good to talk about it moment to moment so because of my unfinished business i enter the next moment with this becoming and that's my consciousness and body and mind come next and with body and mind we have our we're sensitive we have our six sense gates the five physical senses and the mind this is just the model so don't see this as absolute truth and then out of having these six sense gates eyes ears smell taste tactile experience and thoughts then we have sense contact we actually have the mind is impinged by a thought or a memory the mind is impinged by a smell or by a sight by a sound by a touch constantly we can't help but have sense contact and if we have sense contact based on our conditioning karmic formations 
we either like it or don't like it or take it as neutral. And now this is where it gets really important or interesting. Because this is one of the place, places where we can break the cycle of samsara. Right where we're feeling the sense contact. So when we have any experience, a feeling tone arises. The mind interprets it as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Right? You cannot look at anybody in this room without, on some, to some degree, having a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling affect arise in your mind. You can't do anything without a feeling affect. You can't think of anything without a feeling affect. Either it's a pleasant thought or an unpleasant thought or a neutral thought. And almost always, not always, but often, neutral just means you haven't looked carefully enough to see if it's pleasant or unpleasant. And that arises because of our conditioning. So, like, I might look at something and see it's pleasant, and Wynne might look at it and it would be unpleasant because her conditioning is different than mine. So it's not an absolute. I feel the cool breeze and it says, oh, that feels good. And somebody else feels the cool breeze and says, oh, it's cold. It's unpleasant. So this tells you a little bit, having heard what Sharon said when I read Sharon's section, you know, where she was talking about swinging back and forth, careening back and forth between pleasant and unpleasant experience, which is just a little bit of an exaggeration what it's like for us. It's, she's really talking about this point. Because of ignorance, we hang consciousness, body, we have six sense gates, we have sense experience. All of that is just no, nothing we can do about that. And if we have sense experience, then we have feeling time. There's nothing we can do about that either. There's nothing I can do to change the response my mind creates by seeing the meditation cushion in front of me. So for me, it's mostly a pleasant experience. It reminds me of meditation and quietness and peacefulness. So I look at that. And there's really nothing I can do without uh, creating a lot of other unfinished business. You know, maybe I could turn it into a negative experience, a painful experience. But right now, it's a pleasant experience. And right now, there's nothing I can do about that. But how I relate to that present, that pleasant experience, that is the present moment input. That we can do something about. I can see that cushion and I can get attached to it, not want anybody else to touch it. Or I can see that cushion and feel the pleasantness and know there's pleasantness in the mind and it's like this. I can be mindful of the, the pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feeling tone. When we're not mindful, when we're not aware of the feeling tones, we react. We don't realize it, but we're reacting all the time. You sit down in the bus next to somebody who has body odor, and whether you know it or not, if you don't like the smell of body odor on a, somebody else sitting right next to you, then you will react to it. And so on some level, in your mind, to some degree in your mind rather, your mind is resisting the experience. Whether you sh subtly shift your posture over, away from the person, or you just tighten up, or you engage in some kind of denial or distraction, or you hate the person, blame the person, have negative thoughts about the person. Whatever way, whatever way you react, it's suffering for you, likely creates suffering for other people, 
And the trick was, the mistake was that you couldn't help having a body. At this point, we can't help having a body and a mind and the six sense gates and sense contact and feeling tone arise. We can't help the fact that we don't like the smell of this person. That is a given at this point, given our conditioning. But what we can do is learn to relate to the smell wisely. And that's where the Buddha suggests we break the cycle. Oh, unpleasantness is like this. And this is the place that we keep missing. So if we miss that, then in terms of this 12-link chain of dependent origination, it goes from the feeling, let's say in this case, unpleasant feeling, to craving, to becoming. So once we crave the ending of this smell, we're in that becoming stage again. I want to become the person who's not sitting next to somebody who stinks. I want to become the person who gets to the bus stop where I get off, or he gets off, or she gets off. So that's the becoming, that sort of... Um, we're taking this mind-body experience, and it's all being shaped toward things being other than they are. This is the opposite of being mindful. Because when we're mindful, we're open and undefended with the way things are. When we're in the becoming state, we're pushing away the present moment. We're at war, literally at war with the present moment, although we don't see it that way. And so becoming leads to birth and death, suffering, birth and death, and the cycle continues because the birth and death is based on ignorance, whether it's the birth and death of moment-to-moment -moment experience or the actual death of this life and the beginning of the next life. So that's the system that the Buddha used to talk about how it is that we end up suffering. It's not an accident. And so the place to bring wisdom, to change the way that we relate, is here at the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. This is, where, this is where we cultivate equanimity because we discover that we can be fully energetically present with the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences moment by moment, but to relate to them with mindfulness instead of reactivity. And that's the trick. And so equanimity is when we're relating to the moment and specifically to the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of this moment with mindfulness. It doesn't mean we don't, it doesn't mean that unpleasant experience isn't unpleasant. So when we're equanimous, it doesn't mean that pain isn't painful and pleasure isn't pleasurable. It just means that we're letting the pain be pain and we're letting the pleasure be pleasure, and we're taking refuge in that full presence as opposed to our habits of reacting to it. So instead of the, the stereotypic understanding of equanimity where we're becoming more distant and detached, it's just the opposite. We're really there in the middle of the pleasant or unpleasant or neutral experience, fully there, but with wisdom. The wisdom that's understanding where well, this is how it is now. And any reactivity is, is a layer of suffering, is extra. It's unnecessary.
So it might be useful before we open it up for discussion to just imagine what is that, what would that be like? You know, you can just either now or think back today or some point in your life when it was pleasant or unpleasant or neutral for you in some clear way. And just imagine, like, well, what, what is it like? What would it be like to not react to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral? Not to base our life on that. And uh, before our discussion, I'll just read a little bit. This is another really uh, wonderful, useful book for meditation practice. It's called Insight Meditation, The Practice of Freedom by Joseph Goldstein. It's nice how these books don't get dated. So this is a chapter on acceptance, and it's very much related to equanimity. And, And Joseph calls this, or uses the phrase, soft and spacious mind. And he gives an example. Suppose you're watching your breath in meditation and you feel a sense of struggle or tension. This feeling of struggle may be a sign that something else is happening in your experience that you are not recognizing or allowing. Perhaps you are not opening to some other sensation in the body, some discomfort or some underlying emotion. Or perhaps you've become caught up in expectation with too much effort of striving or striving wanting the experience of the moment to be different from what it actually is. Softness means opening to what is there, relaxing into it. At such a time, try this mantra. It's okay. Whatever it is, it's okay. Let me feel it. That's a nice mantra. It's okay. Whatever it is, it's okay. Let me feel it. That is the softening of the mind. You can open to your experience with a sense of allowing and simply be with whatever predominates, pain, a thought, an emotion, anything. Softening the mind involves two steps. First, become mindfully aware of whatever is most predominant. That is the core guideline for all insight meditation. So the first step is just to see, to open. The second step, notice how you're relating to whatever arises. Often we can be with an arising appearance, but in a reactive way. If we like it, we tend to hold on to it, we become attached. If we do not like it because it is painful in some way, we tend to contract, push away out of fear, irritation, or annoyance. Each of these responses is the opposite of acceptance. The easiest way to relax is to stop trying to make things different rather than try to create another state. That's that beginning I was talking about. Simply allow space for whatever is going on. A little later in this chapter, Joseph Goldstein reminds us something that's so important, which is The purpose of this practice isn't to have a pleasant experience or to get rid of unpleasant experience. The purpose of the practice of mindfulness is to be free in experience, 
to be free in our lives, no matter the conditions of our lives, but to be free. So it's an unconditional freedom that we're interested in. What that means, it means that it's a freedom or an ease or a peace that's not dependent on particular a particular life situation or a particular circumstance. That's what we're after. So if we live, if we do our practice, whether daily life practice or sitting practice, and we're constantly trying to get someplace pleasant, even if it's a sublime kind of pleasantness, like really a quiet mind, then we're always living under the fear that our mind's going to be agitated. And we're in this war. I'm at war with an agitated mind. And we're attached, happy and attached whenever we get the unagitated mind. And we're never free of anxiety. We never know the unconditional happiness or unconditional peace. So the way, the gateway to the unconditional peace, as Joseph says, is not trying to make things different than they are. Not assuming happiness is dependent on things being different than they are. So maybe contentment here and now with the way things are. So I'll leave it here so that we have time to hear from each other. We have about 17 or 18 minutes for people to share from your own practice what you've been learning about equanimity or about opening and what gets in the way of equanimity, what gets in the way of being fully present with your life, with experience, questions that you might have about the talk tonight, what comes to mind? I guess I'm struggling with, with the concept in a way. Um, I understand it in terms of reactions to things that are unexpected and how there's a certain wisdom in not being reactive and, and that, that makes a lot of sense. But when you think about a day, uh, you try to plan your day. You know, you don't have control over everything, but you, you, if you go to work, you try to set yourself up so you're not going to be under stress constantly by, by not doing your job appropriately. or uh, you know, if, you, if you're taking the bus, you might avoid sitting next to that person who looks like this. Mm-hmm. And, and in a sense, isn't that clinging? I mean, it, we're trying to avoid things that we don't like. You know, I'm, I've been sailing this summer because I like sailing. Mm-hmm. I've had that much more time. Yeah. So I try to arrange more moments where I'm going to be sailing. And, and that's clinging, too. Well, it, way, could, right? it could be. Yeah, you only know if you look at your mind if it, there's clinging. So you can never know, like when you see, observe another person, you will never know, well, I mean, it might be obvious, you know, if the person's grimacing, <laughs> but we really don't know whether somebody's clinging, attached or not, often, unless we ask them, or if it's, you know, in, in terms of ourselves, unless we look directly to see, is there clinging? Because just because you really enjoy sailing and a lot of pleasant sensations arise in your body and mind when you're out on the lake and you're sailing doesn't mean it's a negative experience doesn't mean you're attached doesn't mean you're clinging the way you will know is if you're really looking forward to sailing on Saturday and then the weather's bad if you suffer because of that then there's clinging because this 
there's no reason to suffer when you can't get what you like. It doesn't do any good to suffer. To hate not having good weather does no good. It doesn't make the weather change. It's completely extra and it arises because we had an image of ourselves sailing on Saturday and now that's not happening. And so we were attached to that image. It was pleasant. And now that image has been destroyed because it's stormy and we can't. And so we suffer. So the act of seeking something pleasurable isn't necessarily... No, we're all doing that. We all live with desire, all human, all beings, not just human beings, right? Because our, my cat, our cat, you know, it seeks out pleasurable experiences. We all do. We are, life doesn't happen without desire. So the question is, we have this mind that's capable of conceptualizing a future or conceptualizing something happening now and getting attached or getting afraid of it. That's extra. And that we can live without. And it doesn't mean we just got to get rid of the mind that can conceptualize. It's no going back. you know. So we've got this kind of mind. The question is, how do we relate to it? How do we work with it? And the way we rework with it is we, we get more interested in the mind and how in its... Uh, it's seeking out what's pleasurable and seeking out and avoiding what's unpleasurable, how it creates hell in a way that's completely un unproductive and unnecessary. And that we can do about, and there's, and that happens to the nth degree. So first we start with the really obvious things. Like, let's say you want to be in a really healthy, beautiful, intimate relationship, and you're not. And so you could spend a lot of your day really hating your life or hating yourself or blaming everybody out there for not loving you or not being interested in you or something like that. And that would be hell. That would literally be hell. And we all do that. Now that's relatively easy to start to see. But there's all kinds of ways we're doing this in very subtle ways where, you know, our mind is just slightly discontent, but we're not aware of it. We're not aware that we're leaning into the future or clinging to the past in subtle ways. And so the, the practice is to not just see it in the, in the obvious ways, but to get interested to uproot all of the forms of clinging and craving, all the attachments, all the identifications, so that the heart really gets freed up. And then, and then it's like uh, we see that uh, the freedom is really not needing life to be any particular way. <clears throat> I mean, wouldn't that be amazing if we didn't need our life to unfold in any particular way? That the happiness was unconditional. But as long as we think our happiness is dependent on being able to sail. Now, see, there's nothing wrong with sailing, but thinking that your happiness is dependent on the sailing is the expression of attachment. That, that somehow you would be less happy if all of a sudden you couldn't sail anymore. Somehow your sailing license was taken away. <laughs> you can be disappointed for a little while. Yeah. 
Other thoughts? Yeah, Tim. I have a question. I just uh, recently had a neighbor of mine passed away and he was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. And from what I'm hearing, I, I mean, my question is more or less, could someone with serious mental illness practice, you know, uh, equanimity and find the peace to the point where they don't need to be I don't know the the answer to that. Probably there are people that will always benefit from all kinds of um, interventions, including pharmaceuticals. That's my guess. Uh, but I don't I don't really know. But what I do know, because I, I have worked and, and friends with people who every everywhere from people who are, you know, taking serious heavy duty antipsychotic and other kinds of um, meds to people kind of more like a lot of us, people who have taken antidepressants or one form or another and come on and off it at different times and are practicing along the spectrum. People who have been hospitalized and are still institutionalized on heavy-duty meds who do a lot of this practice. And what I can say with confidence is it's helpful because if you're somebody who for whatever reason, karmically, chemically, that the mood swings or the kind of intensity of thought, the intensity of experience is really profoundly different than, let's say, a typical person. And let's say that kind of is our definition of mental illness. People who have uh, kinds of experiences that they're not able to deal with in the way that we expect an um, ordinary person to be able to deal with. But what I notice in the people that I've talked to over here is that they can develop more and more skill with practice of catching their mind, participating in the intensity of drama. And then the drama can pop. Not always, but it doesn't matter if it can do it always. If it can do it some of the time, it's really to their advantage. So anytime we can catch our mind participating in the experience of creating drama that we react to, that we get attached and identified with, basically weaving a web then that we get lost in, that we're in, lost inside of. Like, I've got to go sailing on Saturday. I've got to go sailing on Saturday. If we weave that web, we will suffer. Because even, even if we do get to sail on Saturday, just the tension that the weather will turn bad is suffering. Even if we're not noticing it because we're so excited about the possibility, underneath the excitement is tension and constriction in the heart. So just because we don't know we're suffering doesn't mean we're not suffering. But to whatever degree that person can catch it and just relax, like, it would be really nice to go sailing on Saturday, but I don't really know if I'll be able to go. And then just relax, knowing that they don't know for sure. And just relax with that truth. Like, I don't know whether I'll be able to go, but I'd like to go. That is, there's freedom right there. It's a, in the direction of freedom. And it's just a question of kind of s staying with it, you know, and not giving up and keep 
popping that tendency of the mind to construct drama, like a house of cards that we then live inside of. We can just see it and it falls apart. Now we make people with mental illness are tend to be the people who reconstruct the house right over again. But that doesn't matter. They feel empowered. As soon as they they have done it enough times, they're not so overwhelmed by the houses they build, by the dramas they build, because they understand that this can collapse. If I just open to it, if I just look clearly, I'll see that this is just a thought. This is just a drama. And it pops. Not always, of course. But not always for us. I mean, for people without serious mental illness, too. Spend more time? Yeah, Kenneth. Um, this goes back to talk to you, but can you talk about trust? And I think this is related. And, and when you talked about it before, you talked about its opposite being cynicism. Yeah, I could see how cynicism would be certainly in the way of trust. <clears throat> because cynicism is a kind of arrogance. Like we think we know that like it isn't trustworthy <laughs> or a life isn't to be you know, open to. It isn't good. I, I often like to repeat this line I heard. I'm assuming it's true that a journalist interviewed Albert Einstein before his death and asked him, about what he thought the most important unanswered question about the universe was. And he said, well, the only relevant question still unanswered is, is the universe a safe place? <laughs> That's a great, it's a great, it's a great statement because it supports a direct reflection on our life. Like, well, is this life safe? Is the experience of this life something, like, what is the appropriate response to having a mind and body? To open, to allow, or to struggle? And so, cynicism, when we're cynical, we think we know the answer. And, uh, and probably a more effective way to live is to know that we don't know the answer, and to experiment to see what happens when we open, see what kind of results we get the more we open <coughs> and trust. You know, trust can be as simple as being willing to feel our body right now. You know, just just trusting that, well, this is how the body is now. The aches and pains that we have or the sleepiness that we feel, this is how it is now. And to just trust that or to trust uncertainty, like when we're, all of us, we have so many different relationships in our lives. If you're like me, a lot of our relationships are confusing. You know, we don't know how we should be with this person. What we should say, what we shouldn't say. And so, one of the most skillful things I've learned to do is to really trust that I don't know what to do. I don't know how to make this relationship work. And it really helps me. It really frees me up. Um, rather than pretending like I do know, feeling like I have to have a, a strategy, <laughs> and then think it, not only have a strategy, but think it's the right strategy. Does that kind of get at what you're asking, Kenneth? Maybe time for one more person. Somebody else? Yeah, Mona. Um, that's really like what you just said, because um, 
Yeah, so there's a nice feedback loop, right? Just like being cynical or having a fixed stance has a feedback loop true, too, which is we tend to defend it, which kind of makes it even more rigid, less useful. And then because it's less useful and more rigid, it's less effective. So it needs more defense. <laughs> and you know, our life gets more and more tight and rigid and ineffective. Yeah, so it works both ways, positive feedback loop or a negative one. Any last comments people have? Thoughts? Well, maybe we'll leave it here. So we'll just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciate being here together. In this moment, we can practice not being confused by the feeling tone, whatever that might be. It could be a beautiful feeling tone or very unpleasant or neutral. But instead, just allowing things to be what they are, trusting this great, unconditional peace that arises with equanimity, the peace or the contentment that allows, that can allow things to be the way that they are, not needing things to be different than they are. So we can all, each of us in our own way, aspire to cultivate this wisdom, this way of being, as our gift to ourselves and our gift to all beings. May we all be part of the causes and conditions for happiness and peace and freedom from reactivity, from suffering. May all beings be at ease. So thanks again for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.